Today's episode is all about adherence. My guests are Dr. K. Rivier Amico, an associate professor at University of Michigan School of Public Health. She has worked in the area of social behavioral science and HIV treatment and prevention for over two decades. Her contributions have included models of adherence and well-being that emphasize context and social determinants, brief interventions to support participants in studies and patients in care, measures of stigma and feasibility, acceptability, and a consistent advocacy for person-first, community-centered approaches and programs. Dr. Miko works globally in her ongoing efforts to engage bi-directional learning and capacity sharing. And Portia Dees, who's an HIV influencer, a self-described artivist, and founder of Positive Vibes Only, with a mission to heal holistically and inspire others to take better care of themselves, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Portia is a service coordinator one at Step Up and attends Asio Pacific University's MSW program. Since 2013, Portia's advocacy work has allowed her to make contributions with organizations like The Well Project and the Vertical Special Interest Group within the National HIV and Aging Advocacy Network. Taking HIV medications as prescribed, otherwise known as antiretroviral or ARN adherence, is critical for people living with HIV to achieve viral suppression, which is the foundation for U equals U, or undetectable equals untransmittable. Art adherence requires a lifelong commitment from the individual, but is far more complex than just pills to mouth. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. So let's begin with why. Why is antiretroviral therapy or art adherence so important? So for me, unless you're a non-progressor, which is someone who um, doesn't need antiretroviral therapy or HIV meds to remain undetectable, it's important so that you can get to an undetectable viral load and you can control the virus and so you won't get sick. (laughs) It's very important so that, you know, you can stay healthy and you can live a normal, healthy life. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, full disclosure, right? I'm not an MD, right? I'm a psychologist and public health advocate in my work and practice. So there's a few medical reasons, you know, that are worth mentioning. Some have already been mentioned that if you can adhere to an effective regimen, then you can reach viral suppression, right? And viral load is, you know, used to measure how much HIV is circulating in your body. So the more circulating, the more damage it's doing to your body. So with effective art, you can dramatically drop that amount, right, to levels that are so low that the tests used to look at the virus don't even see it. And that's undetectable. And so the benefits of being undetectable is that, you know, longer life, less damage to your immune system and less effects from the virus. The flip side is that having a lot of virus uncontrolled by medications does damage to your immune system and and makes you feel sick and you might get infections that can be life-threatening. But I did want to note that in terms of the medical pieces that are there, I mean, I think that that's pretty clear, right? Your physical health. But there's mental and health and well-being kind of components to it as well. So psychological factors make adherence important, right, and relevant in life living with HIV. So if you can reach viral suppression and keep it down through consistent use of antiretrovirals, um, you not only have stronger health, but you also can't pass on the virus, right? Undetectable equals untransmittable. And that is 
a real source of comfort for a lot of people. Um, and, and a lot of people experience that as a major change in their functioning and their well-being. So not being able to reach viral suppression can also be a source of frustration. So it's not only about physically doing well, it's about mentally feeling well also. Feeling like you can control that HIV and, and that you're on top of it. I mean, that can be very meaningful. Yeah, I like that treatment as prevention piece you added in there as well, not just about yourself, but for community as well. Well, I think that's one of those things that have really revolutionized things for all of us. I know Portia, someone who was born with HIV, things like U equals U and TASP weren't met, maybe the messages that were given out at first. And and I think in that context, we got to think about to folks who maybe don't get that message in a clinical setting. Right. As someone who worked in a clinical setting, I did see providers who were resistant to sharing that message. But what we found when we were doing surveys of people talking about U equals U, how motivating that was to be adherent to their medication. Absolutely. So, you know, I think there's a flip side to both of those. You know, yes, it's important to keep us healthy, but also that motivation piece to stick with it. Right, right. I like how Dr. Amico talked about the psychological effects to adherence as well. Because as you were mentioning, Calvin, being that I was born HIV positive, I had to learn to keep up with my adherence and that the medication is really something that I need the hard way. You know, (laughs) I think for a long time I was adherent to my medication because my parents made me be adherent to my medication. You know, like I wasn't in control of that. Um, I had to take my medication um, and my aunt and uncle made me take my medication. But there was a point in time where I struggled with adherence and that was during like the transition from pediatric HIV care into adult HIV medical care. And like everything that was going on in my life at the time, I also lost my biological mother due to AIDS-related illnesses around the same time, my junior year of high school. And I transitioned from pediatric care to adult care when I was 21. So it was all happening around the same time. My mother was an adherent. And I think it was because a lot of the things she went through psychologically, like in her social life, this was back in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, where the stigma was very much so heightened. I think there's still a stigma, but it was worse, you know. Um, And my family kind of like scapegoated her and she didn't really have very much support. So, she kind of went into a more downward spiral with drugs and that was her coping mechanism, you know? And so watching my mom not be adherent, watching her pass away, you know, we don't talk about these kind of things in our family, like the Black families. And I'm sure it's like universal and other, you know, ethnic and racial groups as well, the culture of silence. So, those things affected me, you know? So when I transitioned, I kind of like fell out of care too. It was like this, it was a lot of things happening. I thought that was what was going to happen to me anyways. I was going to die anyway. So I also was like fresh into college and I didn't want people seeing me taking my meds, but like it was a lot of social mental and emotional things that was going on that affected my adherence. 
I appreciate what you're saying because it really calls attention to this is not about pill to mouth. This is not about showing up for an injection. It's part of a larger kind of network of self-care. Yes. Right. And, and yeah. so everything that's going on in your life around and that can challenge that, you know, can be a real barrier. Yes, ma'am. So I think we've touched on some really important things about how art is affected both by our circumstances or our mental health or the challenges that we go through. So if you were talking to someone who was newly diagnosed, what would be a key message that you think they should hear? I have a few, actually. So I think treatment's available, right? Not everybody knows. Some people know, you know, treatment is available, but not everybody knows. So treatment is available and it can control the virus. So immune functioning is protected. You know, you can live a long and very healthy life. I would also add in a request uh, for people to kind of be aware that they can be active in the decisions around their care. And that includes kind of what therapies they're prescribed, what different kind of profiles those medications have and when you, when you need or are supposed to take them. More and more choices are going to be coming along. But to, to be active in that, know you equals you. No help is available. Um, I would say prioritize your well-being, not just your physical body. I think the other thing I would say, especially when working with youth, but with, with everybody, is that, you know what, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard for a bit, but you're worth it. Yes. And continue that, telling people that, that, you know what, you're worth this challenge. For me, I would say, I know when I stepped outside of, self and looked at the fact that it's not just me going through this and even outside of the HIV and AIDS realm, a lot of other people in the world are struggling with other health conditions. So thinking about that, that you're not alone. It's it's not just us. Like it's not just folks living with HIV who are on therapy or on treatment. Again, the different type of therapies too, that you have a choice now. It's There's one pill once a day as opposed to the many pills that we had to take in our regimen back in the day. Um, and then now the injection medication. I actually have been talking to my doctor about that. Like you can take a shot every other month now and then you don't have to take a pill every day anymore. Like how awesome is that, right? But that's what really helped me is thinking about it. Like, I'm not alone in this because I used to think, why me? And I think a lot of folks, you know, their medicine reminds them of maybe their status or um, they might get treatment fatigue from taking medicine over the long periods of time. But what helps me is just thinking about like other folks are taking treatments for other things and, and sometimes their treatments are a lot worse and I can do this. This isn't that bad. And so that would be my message. <laughs> I love that. So like I was saying to you guys back when I fell out of care, before I fell out of care, there were many reasons as to why I wasn't remaining adherent to my medication. Now that I've been through that and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing now, like still every once in a while, because I'm so busy, you know, sometimes I might forget or like, oh, 
I'm afraid that what if I took my medicine twice because I forgot like that if I took it and then like I just want to take it again to be safe. Like I'm sure I've done that plenty of times or just having to worry about like when you're going on a trip to pack your medication, you won't have to worry about no more. So that's like super awesome, (laughs) you know? I don't know. I'm just super excited about that. And even thinking of how much further it can go, like if it's we can take a shot every other month, like what if it gets to we can take a shot every year? I don't know. And I agree with you, Portia. I think there's a lot of things in the pipeline. There's a lot of innovations that hopefully will will come around in the next few years, actually, that are going to get longer and longer and longer. You do need to get your initial dose. You come back a month later, and then you get on your every other month. Okay. Yeah. So, but every other month, how amazing is that? to be able to take advantage of for your complete regimen. Yeah. I think there's there's some, you know, ongoing back and forth of whether or not that's going to kind of resolve potential adherence challenges, but adherence starts to take a different face with Cabanuva. So adherence is going to mean, are you showing up for your injection visit within about a week of the time that it's scheduled? And if you go beyond that week, now some complicated protocols come in place with whether or not you, you know, restart oral medication for a period of time um, and so on. But if you get there within that one week window, that's going to be quote unquote optimal adherence for Cabanuva. So I just love that we're getting choices. It's not going to be for everybody, right? But it's going to be for some people and for those people, it's going to be a game changer. I think what you just said is is one of those things that comes up, and you've kind of brought it up before, that the power of choice, because there are so many options for folks, that's really powerful. You know, I know that I'm sure when Portia was taking medication as a kid, that list was limited. I know my first appointment in a doctor's office, the, you know, the poster in the office was, it wasn't it wasn't short, but it was, it looks nothing like it is today. They need more pages today than they needed on the one page when yeah. I first walked in there. So I, I think, you know, choice is such a powerful thing and it's such a game changer. I think there's over 30 HIV medications now. You guys, just, but this isn't a fun fact, but when I was a kid, I was born 10 years before antiretroviral therapy came out. So I was on a bunch of clinical trials and I had one of those hard shell lunch pills, you guys, like with the Disney characters on them. And it was filled with medications. Like I had to take maybe like 10 in the morning and 10 at night. And Mm -hmm. some of them were medications for the side effects of the medication. So I'm just ecstatic at where we are at today. (laughs) I do want to throw in there not to be a downer, but, you know, equitable access to injectables, uh, both domestically and globally, I think needs to stay pretty firmly on our radar. And then we also need more data. We need more data for youth, pregnant women, um, other populations that weren't part of the initial trials. So really making sure that that cost is manageable, that it's included in the formularies, and also 
you know, how this might work for people who are not virally suppressed, because mm. right now this is for people who are virally suppressed, at least in terms of the approval. And I know there's studies going on, but we really want to be able to see if someone who's struggling with daily oral could use this. And this might be, you know, their game changer. So really thinking about the inclusiveness, making sure that it's available more widely, and hopefully we determine that it's um, it's safe and effective for people who uh, are not virologically suppressed right now. That's a good point. I think one thing that might be of interest to folks is, is there room for error when it comes to pill-based versus injectable art? We've talked there's kind of an error space there for injectables, but really how much adherence is enough adherence? So, I mean, I can talk about it from the research side, but I'm real interested in what Portia has to say from her own experiences. So I would say it depends on your regimen, right? So several years ago in that lunchbox kind of regimen, you needed near-perfect adherence. I mean, near-perfect, almost 100% to be able to really uh, see the benefits. Nowadays, with the kind of regimens that are out there and tend to be prescribed, you know, if you can hit about 80% adherence over the course of a month or so, that's typically adequate. For injectables, again, your adequate is going to be trying to make sure that you meet the date of your next injection visit. And if you have to miss it, try to make sure that that's not more than seven days out. Do it as close as you can to when the uh, scheduled visit is. I mean, I think I'm going to echo you right now, Dr. Amico. My personal opinion on it is I think people also get to choose you know, if they want to be adherent to their medication or not. Like, I think that's even a choice. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend taking like med holidays if you're tired or not being adherent to your medication. But honestly, I just, I think that choice also is the patient's choice, the person living with HIV's choice, if they want to be adherent or not, you know? if they want to take their meds. You're absolutely right, though, (laughs) right? I mean, this is a self-driven thing, behavior. And so we talk about intentional non-adherence, where so often people assume it's unintentional, but but there's intentional non-adherence. That's a touchy Um, topic. (laughs) Well, and ultimately, that is someone's decision. And I think anyone in public health or who loves that person is biting their nails because you know, it can be so severe what the consequences are. But ultimately, that's what autonomy is. So you're not wrong. It's just, you know, certainly challenging for those who care for that person to kind of see that process. Exactly. I I see it all the time in in the field of work that I do. So that's why I wanted to say it. (laughs) Well, I think those are important points to make because, you know, just like Dr. Miko wanted to point out the inequality and in distribution of injectables. Yeah. These are real things that, you know, often don't get a voice in a public space. We talk about them behind doors in research facilities or in nonprofits or NGOs. And those conversations don't make it out to the wider world. Yeah. You know, and so there might be someone who listens or watches this who might think, oh, I'm not the only person who deals with that. But so often and I think with all of the things that have happened in our world the last couple of years, we tend to feel more isolated. 
And I think my hope is that, you know, someone listens to one of these episodes and thinks, oh, I'm not the only person who feels this way. Because if, if folks aren't connected to a community or a support group or a peer educator, HIV can be a very isolating bubble to live in. Sure. Especially mm-hmm. if you don't know other people. And I think it's you know easier than ever to access other people living with HIV than it ever has been. You know, I remember my first like social media post about living with HIV. There was like five of us on Instagram. <laughs> and now there are hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a positive aspect to some of the things that the negative things, bringing them up in, in conversation can have when we talk about the things that might be isolating for someone. Yeah. I have folks that I follow that I know that are, they're trying to control their viral load, like through their diet, through their eating, like they don't mm-hmm. want to take their medications, you know, and that's their choice. Um, and just folks who just prefer not to, you know? So because I had to learn the hard way and I got really sick, I don't encourage that for anyone, but that was a game changer for me too. When I got connected to communities of folks living with HIV or going through the same thing that I was going through, that that changed everything for me and empowered me to, you know, want to get back in care and stay in care and Live. (laughs) And live you do, my friend. Yes. (laughs) So we've talked about some of these things, but I mean, what are some of the barriers and challenges to art adherence that people both newly diagnosed and those who are treatment experienced face? I think this is a, you know, another moment for us to talk about things that people might feel isolated about. I'll jump in because I have a feeling that you can really um, put some flesh to these bones. (laughs) But, you know, over the years, there's been so many like rubrics, classification systems, you know, oftentimes it's thought about in terms of barriers, you have characteristics of the medication, you know, how many are there and are they experienced as toxic, the systems providing that medication. So what is it like interacting with that? Are they respectful at the, at the point of care, the person themselves, right? Thoughts, beliefs, feelings, uh, as well as their social networks, but then also the disease itself and the way in which society stigmatizes, you know, or otherwise relates to that disease. All of those different areas can produce uh, challenges around adherence. And actually aspects of some of those areas can really foster adherence as well. Um, So I think in terms of at least what seems to be out there is that in addition to side effects, right, and wanting to avoid them, some of the top reasons for non-adherence are literally simply forgetting, yeah. right, but also competing priorities. So that could include anything from a demanding work schedule to active drug use, um, and also the drug being a negative reminder, right, of, of living with HIV um, or having to depend on, on medications, and before I pass it over to you, Porsche, I just want to emphasize to anyone who's listening that this is not unique in some ways to, to HIV, right? Like human beings have a hard time doing something daily that doesn't have a clear and pretty immediate reward or outcome. So taking medication on the daily that doesn't give you relief from something that's uncomfortable, like, like a headache or pain, or doesn't bring you to a state that you'd like to be in. Um, that's really difficult to do. And HIV drugs might actually make you feel worse than when you started, especially as you're just getting started on them. 
So I think there's plenty of barriers and challenges. There's lots of things that can also foster adherence, but I just want to emphasize how really normal that is. Uh, and I think the more people can understand that this is a legit challenge and this is not a simple like, oh, it's just once a day. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? It's challenging. It's challenging for everybody. It's challenging across different conditions. So asking, you know, for help is, is okay. Yes, ma'am. I'll add personal experiences to what you said. Even um, like having a sinus infection or something like and taking that Z-Pack and, you know, you got to take the two at the beginning and then after that for the rest of the week. But once you feel fine already, like I know sometimes I I don't finish my Z-Pack because I feel better already and I feel like I don't need it, but you're supposed to finish it all the way through, right? Like, and that's kind of, I feel like how folks with HIV feel, like also you feel okay. You feel like good. And so I know that was one of the reasons when I was younger, when I graduated, I like didn't want to take my medicine anymore for various reasons. And then I felt okay still. So I was like, I don't need it. But that's not true. <laughs> that wasn't true. Um, I was in college. I didn't want folks to see me taking my medicine. I think that speaks to the stigma piece that you were talking about. I actually got outed a couple of times because folks saw my meds in the refrigerator. And the treatment fatigue is like when you've been on medication for a very long time, that played a big role in why I stopped taking my medicine then and sometimes why I feel like I don't want to take my medicine still now, you know, because you're just tired. You're tired of it. <laughs> but yeah, no, all those things you mentioned. So I, I would love to ask a question. Yes, ma'am. I'm curious, Portia, you've mentioned several times that you, you know, you needed a period of time where you were like, I'm, I'm not going to take it for a spell. How did you know that you didn't want to continue on that path? Like what, what was it that made you realize, wait a minute, I, I, I do, I do need this. I got really sick. It took about yeah. Six years. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was in my early 20s when I had graduated high school and I went to college. And I think also that environment of things, I think you mentioned conflict of um, competing, priorities. competing priorities. That's what you said. Yeah. So, you know, I was fresh in college. We were in the like partying, college party yeah. stage, turn up. <laughs> We were drinking all the time and also how the medicines interact with alcohol when you're drinking, it doesn't feel very good. So I literally what didn't want to take my medicines because I'd rather drink and have fun and live. And that was what living my life was to me at the time. And so I would get sick like sometimes I would be on and off my medicine and I definitely wasn't going to my doctor's appointments. And I would get sick sometimes and start taking it, but then go back to not taking it. But after about six years, and and again, I thought I was okay. Like I felt good until it took that long for my T cells to get really, really low. And then I got pneumonia and I knew I had pneumonia because I've been used to getting pneumonia. So I knew that that was it. But then also my kidneys failed. I had acute 
kidney mm. failure and a couple other opportunistic infections. And I was in the hospital for like a long time and I was scared. That was the most scared I've ever been in my whole entire life. And I like yeah. prayed and I was bargaining like with God and everything. And yeah. they didn't want to start me on dialysis because I was so young. I was only 24. And then they finally did after a couple of weeks and after three dialysis sessions, my kidney started working again. You know, they started me on my treatment and stuff. And I got better and I got out of there and I felt like, okay, this is my second chance. And wow. I got to get my my sh together. You know? <laughs> and I did from there. So, yeah, wow. that's what wow. happened. And I got connected to my first community advisory board and got to be around other folks who were living with HIV because I thought I was by myself back then. And it just was up from there, Dr. Amico. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You're welcome. I think that was a really powerful, Portia, especially for folks who may be experiencing some difficulty and challenges in their adherence or who might be newly daunted by the fact that I've got to take this medication every day. It's important. And I think, you know, that's why I asked you to be here because, you know, your story <laughs> is very powerful. Thank you. So maybe piggybacking off of that, what are some of the best clinical and behavioral tools available today to support art adherence? I'll start by saying, like you mentioned in my bio, to me, optimize healthcare, it addresses the whole person. So not just like, you know, going to your doctor's appointments and getting your labs done and, and taking your medication, but like that mental and emotional aspect of things. So connecting patients to support groups. Support groups are, to me, like like a very powerful tool for, for folks. Um, or to therapy, Dr. Amico. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I got into therapy, what, last year? And that changed my whole entire life. Just those wraparound support services that really like you know, address those social determinants of health. Absolutely. I'll throw in there that there's a number of different toolkits. There's guidelines. Uh, CDC has Everyday Every Dose Toolkit and App. You know, oh IPAC um, has issued guidelines. Ton available online. But what I would really encourage everybody to recognize is that we will never have a one-size-fits-all right. for adherence support. No should we. Right. We really need to be thinking creatively about identifying needs, looking around at what resources are available that can connect someone to be able to kind of address either individual level or community level needs. And if they're not there, that's where we need to kind of innovate different programs to be able to, to address those. And I, I really like what Portia was saying about the wraparound services, because when I think about needs, yeah, memory reminders, alarms, sure, those are needs. Access, right? Very important need. But also I would include mental health. I'd include well-being, yeah. the opportunity for meaningful relationships and connections with others, safety from physical harm, safety from marginalization, stigma, discrimination. All of that needs to factor into adherence support because it's all about everything that leads to self-care. So we can't 
think about just this. What's this tool I can give you to help you with adherence? Because people don't exist in a vacuum like that. <laughs> so really thinking about all of the systems in which they live and operate and feel good and thrive, you know, those are all of the things that we really should be trying to either promote if people already have those things or, or help get access to if they don't. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm going to go back to something that Portia said. I want to expand on that is that how important is the role of support systems such as peer educators, mm -hmm. support groups, family, friends in supporting long-term art adherence? I think it's very important. Like I said, uh, in my family, we don't talk about things. Things don't get talked about. It's that culture of silence and everybody knows, but nobody talks about HIV with me and my family. Nobody calls me to ask me if I'm okay or did you take your medicine? My mom did, but you know, she's not here anymore. So, <laughs> but even when I got to be an adult, she kind of stopped doing that when I was a kid. Yeah. But you know, nobody does that. And so when you're connected to like a support group with folks who are going through the same thing that you're going through, you get that kind of stuff. I feel like we all feel the same way. So since we know how each other feels, like we're giving each other that support. So, well, for me, at least, I think it's super important. <laughs> Before I got connected to other folks who were living with HIV and going through the same thing I was going through, I only knew my mom. She was going through a lot of stuff mentally. And so that wasn't a good example for me, you know. So then you get to see examples of, I thought I couldn't have kids. And you see other folks married and happy and having kids who are negative and all of that. Like you just get to see examples, you know. So I just think it's really important. <laughs> the social connectedness piece is really, really important. Social connectedness is the key part. Where it comes from, I think, can be variable, right? Yes. Plenty of us don't have family That's that true. are going to be supportive. Um, or friends that we had are no longer friends that we can count on. So I just want to emphasize that, that it's that connectedness part. It's the meaningful relationships part that can be so critical. And so I really appreciate what you were sharing about peers because there's a whole level of connectedness from someone who is themselves living with HIV that just isn't there otherwise. So if you can be part of groups, it can be extremely helpful. If you can then mentor other people, that can be really powerful as well. But like we said with the support system, it's going to be different for everybody. What might be meaningful for one person might not be for someone else. So I think really making sure that we are aware that peer group's not going to be for everybody, but it's going to be the thing for other people. Getting family support, critical for some, not available at all for others. Sure. So there's lots of ways that you can connect socially. And I think being able to, to experience that, you know, feeling of having real meaningful relationships is key for everybody's well-being, right? I think that's so powerful. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Amico and Portia, for joining me today, for their insights and expertise on this important conversation. Sticking with 
it, our medications or our resolutions is such a vital thing, but we can't do that alone. We have to have support and we have to find the way that works best for each of us, whether that's pillboxes or support groups or peer educators. But the most important thing is having informed decisions and walking into our doctor's offices and knowing what it is that we need from our care teams and our support systems to help us stick with it. Because at the end of the day, just like Dr. Amigo said, you're worth it and you deserve to live an incredible life. HIV Connect is made possible through educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merkin Company, which has no influence over the podcast series topics, content, or speaker selection. To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, visit AIDSinfoNet at www.iapac.org backslash support backslash AIDS infonet or click the link in the show notes. As IAPAC Senior Advisor on Community Engagement, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.